Last year I had started a goal, as you might recall, I've been teaching on Psalms periodically, often on Wednesday nights. I had set a goal for myself to try and teach through all of the Psalms by the time I turn 50. And to do that, I need to teach through about 10 Psalms a year. And so this is a long-term project, and I hope and pray God grants me the time uh, and ability to do that. Um, This hopefully is the only one that I'll really spend four on, or else I'll never meet that goal. But when I started that goal, um, I didn't really have a plan of how to pick out psalms to teach. Sometimes some of the ones I taught on last year were we would sing a song from one of our books that was based on a psalm, and I would go and read that psalm and study it and and teach on it. Um, But I didn't have a plan. But I didn't plan on teaching on Psalm 23 very early, and I don't know that I've ever given a lesson just on Psalm 23, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that, one of which I will admit is a character flaw on my part. Um, Whenever there is something that everybody likes, that everybody loves, if there's a book out that everybody's raving about, if there's a movie out that no one will stop talking about and telling how, how great it is, I have a tendency not to want to read that book or watch that movie. Now, don't get me wrong, I love the 23rd Psalm, but when it comes to teaching on it, if there is one passage in Scripture that everybody knows, it's Psalm 23. I would imagine, if I were to ask everybody here, even before this lesson this morning, quote to me just a line from the Psalms, I would venture a guess that most people would say something from Psalm 23. Maybe even if I said, quote me a line from the Bible, there's a good chance that what people would quote would be from Psalm 23. I don't know that there's many other passages that are as well known and as well beloved as this psalm. And so as I started teaching the psalms, I thought there's 150 psalms. I want to focus on the 149 that most of us don't know as well and could do well to learn better. And so I had kind of planned on really leaving this psalm uh, for a little while later. But secondly, I'll also admit, um, whether it's this series or just my teaching in general, I think a part of me has always been afraid to teach on Psalm 23. Because, as I said, I do love this psalm. I think everybody loves this psalm. But knowing how powerful of a psalm it is, and knowing how beloved of a psalm it is, that's a bit of a daunting task to try and teach on this psalm. I could probably find a few psalms that I could study and I could teach, and you may have never even, may may have never heard anything from that psalm. But when it comes to Psalm 23, you've read this, you've heard this, You've probably meditated upon this. You've probably gone to this psalm in some, of your, in some of your darker moments of life. And so the task of trying to teach this psalm to you is a bit daunting because you probably, in many ways, already know this psalm. And then, I've always known this, and as I've studied it more, uh, I now know this even more, I don't think that I have the talent to do any of the psalms full justice, but especially this psalm. It's amazing to me how simple this psalm is. In one sense, I could read this psalm and we could extend the invitation and we could call it good. 
It's a beautiful psalm. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a scholar to understand it. And yet on the other hand, the more I consider this psalm, the more profound, the deeper it is, the more beautiful it is. And there's a recognition, and I have to apologize up front, that this lesson this morning, this series, it simply will not be adequate enough for the beauty of this psalm. And I don't say that from a false humility, because I'll also say I don't know that anyone will ever be able to teach this psalm perfectly. There's always so much more. It's one of the amazing things about this psalm is just how deep it is. But earlier this month, I decided to go ahead and tackle this psalm. And I was mainly instigated by listening to a book. Uh, and I'll share that with you. Uh, I found this, this book. It was on a sale. I actually found the audiobook version. And I started listening to it while I was doing some of my daily walking or driving in the car. Um, the, the Lord of Psalm 23 by a man named David Gibson. And immediately, it wasn't, I had read the introduction and, or listened to the introduction and part of chapter one, and I was in love with this book. And since then, I've, I've listened to the whole book. I've also got a, a digital version that I'm reading through as well. And I'll admit, I, I don't go through books twice very often. Uh, and this book, I, I am. There's very few books that I just openly recommend. Um, this book is one I openly recommend it to you. Now, I wouldn't mind if you waited three or four weeks because I'm not plagiarizing this book, but if you were to read this while I'm going through it, you would see where I'm getting a lot of my ideas and outline and following. It's, it's a fantastic book. But listening to this book, and I would recommend listening to it, by the way, because Mr. Gibson is Scottish, and listening to a Scottish accent um, explain Psalm 23 just makes it that much better. But it's a wonderful book about a wonderful passage. And as I've listened to and read this book and been encouraged by it and challenged by it, I determined that it was time to go ahead and tackle this psalm, but also try and spend some time in it and do it some justice to the best of my ability. So let's go ahead and let's just start with the psalm. And by the way, I want to thank the song leaders uh, for leading several songs this morning that tie so well into our lesson. But let's read Psalm chapter 23. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but it's probably very similar to any version that translation you're reading from. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't want to spend a long time uh, in analyzing and outlining, but I'll bring out just a couple of points. Most commentators, almost every outline I see of this, this psalm, divides it up into two sections. The first four verses, which use a metaphor of sheep and shepherd, and then verses 5 and 6, which you switch somewhat, and they're still tied together, but switch to the metaphor of a host and his guest. 
there are some, and Mr. Gibson talks about this a bit, kind of follows this outline, but actually bring a third metaphor, actually looking at verse 4 as building up on the sheep-shepherd imagery. It's definitely still there, but also focusing highly on the metaphor of a traveling companion, someone who is with us as we make a journey. And so I think these are helpful to consider these metaphors and to remember this basic outline. I'm kind of in my mind thinking that there may actually be a fourth metaphor towards the end, but we will cover that, Lord willing, perhaps when we get towards the end of the psalm in a couple of weeks. But this morning, and I know this may sound strange because it's such a short phrase, but this morning I just want to spend our time in verse 1. Now we will make comments about the rest of the psalm. In fact, this whole series will probably weave back and forth because the whole psalm goes together so well. But I want to consider not even just the first verse, but just that first part of the verse. The Lord is my shepherd. We jump so quickly many times when we read or study or meditate upon Psalm 23 that we focus on the shepherd imagery. We focus on that pastoral care. We focus on what the Lord does for us and what we can, how we can respond to that, that perhaps we forget to just sit and bask in the majesty of the opening line, which is the foundation of this psalm. There's a, a, a practice that I've read about people doing and I've tried now and then myself. I think it's helpful if you're trying to think about and meditate on a passage easily. I'm not talking about a deep dive word study, but just a simple way to meditate on a short passage. And that is to just say the passage out loud can be helpful and say the, the sentence again and again, but each time emphasize a different word. Doing this makes us look at the sentence in a different light. It brings out or highlights aspects of the sentence and the phrase that maybe we wouldn't have noticed if we just read over it quickly. And so if you were to do that with, with this sentence, it would go something like, The Lord is my shepherd. And then you could say, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And the Lord is my shepherd. As you emphasize each of those different words and phrases, and by the way, you can do this with other verses, and especially short verses, and without having to go do a deep word study, without having to do a lot of cross-reference study, just going over the passage and emphasizing that exercises our minds in considering the depth and nuance of a statement in the biblical text. And that's kind of how I want to go about our study this morning, not overly analytical. I think there's a danger, not a danger per se, but when we overanalyze a psalm and we do word studies and we get real deep, kind of like we do in Paul's letters, we, we run the risk of missing the poetry. We run a risk of missing the beauty and the imagery. And so I'm not trying to just break this up and analyze it, but just to consider each of these simple phrases and simple concepts that are found in this word, in this phrase, and I hope that as we leave here this morning, that we will have a greater appreciation for the opportunity to be able to say, along with David and all of the Lord's covenant people, the Lord is my shepherd. So first of all, those first words, and I do include both of these together, because as you probably notice in your Bible, uh, that word Lord is in all caps. It'll be smaller caps, but all capital letters. That's an indication that in the actual Hebrew text, the word is there is God's name. It is Yahweh. 
Uh, in the Hebrew text, it was just the, the, the letter, the consonant letters. We often write it in English uh, that way that you see on the right. But the name Yahweh. This is, so David opens up the song, Yahweh is my shepherd. Now, one thing to look at, and I know we're just looking at the first line, but the Lord, Yahweh, bookends this song. It begins with the Lord, and it ends with, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so at the beginning and the end, we have the Lord. How fitting is that for the one who is the beginning and the end? The one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And there it is, built right into this simple six-verse psalm. But the name Yahweh, of course, was the covenant name that God had revealed to Moses. And while it may seem unrelated, I'd like to spend just a little time considering the scene in which we learn God's name. It's written in the book of Genesis, but it's especially spelled out in there in Exodus chapter 3. You probably know that story well. Moses, of course, has fled Egypt after killing one of the Egyptians. He grew up as in, in Pharaoh's household at the age of 40. He slew an Egyptian while defending his countrymen. He had to flee, and he had gone to Midian, and he spent 40 years there in Midian. And one day, by the way, as a shepherd, a man who was out caring for the sheep of his father-in-law, Moses saw an interesting scene. He looked and beheld and were told that he saw a bush that was on fire. And that probably was alarming and frightening. Perhaps that could lead to a brush fire or something devastating. And yet, something was different about this bush that was on fire because as Moses took a second look, he realized that the bush was on fire, but it was not burning. It was not consumed. It was not destroyed the way a bush typically is when it's engulfed in flames. And so he approached that burning bush and the voice of the angel of the Lord called out, take off your feet for where you come is holy ground. That burning bush incident and that image of the burning bush reminds us and teaches us at first about God's holiness. He is someone who must be reverenced. He is someone who is perfect, who is holy. And we should honor and revere His name as we approach Him. And as Moses came to the, the burning bush and God began to speak to him about his plan. God had heard the cries of his people in Egypt. He knew of their bondage and he was ready to free them and deliver them. And he was going to use Moses to enact that plan. One thing that's interesting there is Moses asks the question in verse 11. He says, who am I? Who am I to go and help this nation? Who am I to go and stand against Pharaoh? Who am I to do this? And God had an answer for Moses that is so very needed today. Because you know what God didn't do? God did not tell Moses why he was qualified to go and bring Israel out. In a world that loves the idea, I am enough, you are enough, and self-affirmation when God comforts His people throughout Scripture, it is never because they are enough. God said to Moses, I will be with you. That's why Moses could do this. That would be why Joshua later would be able to lead Israel through the conquest, not because Joshua was enough, but because God said, do not be afraid. 
I am with you. And again and again and again in scriptures, the comfort to God's people is not in themselves, but it is in God. Well, Moses' next question, as he tries to weasel his way out of this difficult situation, is, well, who should I say sent me? Suppose I go and the Israelites ask me, who sent you to do this? I don't even know your name. And there in Exodus 3.14, we find God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That phrase there is where we get this word Yahweh. And it's a very difficult phrase. The phrase itself mystifies Hebrew scholars to this day. Some say it should be I am who I am or I am who I will be or I will be who I will be. Even in the name of God, there is something that we must wrestle with and signifies that He is something other than us. He's different than us. He is the great I am. That means He is the self-existent one. That's one thing that most all the scholars agree on. This name refers to the very nature of God, and that is that He exists alone. God was not brought into being by some cause or for some purpose. God is. Now, you and I cannot say that we just are. I exist today because of other causes. Not only biological causes, but even day by day, I continue to exist only because my body receives food and water and oxygen. I exist because I am dependent on so much else. You take those things away, you take even some of those things away, and I cease to live. That is not God. God needs nothing. He simply is. And when you think about that, it also makes you think about the burning bush, or at least it makes me think about this. I've never really stopped and considered the imagery of that. Maybe I've always thought it was just a way to get Moses' attention. But think of the symbolism in what is taking place there at the bush. There is a bush that is on fire, and yet it is not burning. It is not consumed. What is fire? Well, fire is actually just an appearance. It's the visual effect of the combustion process. As oxygen interacts with some fuel source or material that reaches a certain temperature and it begins to combust, we can see that as that exothermic heat-inducing process produces heat, produces energy, and we can see the fire as the result. But what is that fire doing? It is consuming. It is destroying. You can go out and you can light a campfire. And what do you have to continue to do through the night? You have to continue to feed more material to that fire because once it has burned it all, once the fuel is gone, the fire goes out. Even the greatest forest fire will at some point go out. But all of the fuel is burned up. But at the burning bush, the bush is not fuel for the fire. The fire simply exists. The fire does not need the fuel source. 
and it does not destroy the fuel source. One man wrote of it like this, In living, the process is going, is going on of which death is the end, but God lives forevermore, a flame that does not burn out. Therefore, his resources are inexhaustible, his power unwearied. He needs no rest for recuperation of wasted energy. His gifts diminish not the store which he has to bestow. He gives and he is none the poorer. He works and is never weary. He operates unspent. He loves and he loves forever. And through the ages, the fire burns on, unconsumed and undecayed. I think it important that we realize when we read the words, the Lord is my shepherd, we are speaking of the same Lord who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. The Lord in the bush speaking to Moses is the Lord who rules and reigns over your life and my life today. Now, I will make a side note because you may wonder about other verses that we find. Example, For example, Deuteronomy 4 verse 24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. It says next, a jealous God. That is in context of a warning to Israel not to commit idolatry. In Deuteronomy 9 verse 3, it says, Know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So it is not that the Lord is a fire that cannot consume. There are times that God says He most definitely is a consuming fire. There are times that He is a destroyer. But He doesn't have to be. His existence is not dependent upon consuming and destroying. When we put ourselves at odds with God, when we rebel against God, then the fire that represents God becomes a very dangerous thing. But at the burning bush, it represents unto us His separate nature. Someone who is not dependent on us whatsoever. Now why make such a big deal about that? Because it is the Lord. It is the great I am. It is the self-existent one. That is my shepherd. I know I'm going out of order, but I want to tie shepherd to the Lord here. The great I am, the creator of all heaven and earth, the one who needs absolutely nothing, is willing to stoop to shepherd me and to shepherd you. I think shepherds are respected to a degree. Shepherds have played instrumental roles throughout history. Sometimes even in uh, ancient Near East cultures, kings referred to themselves as the shepherd of their people. But to think of, but think of what a shepherd does. A shepherd lives with sheep. A shepherd traverses hills and countrysides that sometimes are beautiful and sometimes are very hostile. A shepherd gives up luxury and comfort. A shepherd gives up companionship to care for creatures far below him. 
And that is what the great I am does for us. This finds itself in the rest of the psalm. And as we think about the other things that we read, some of the things we'll talk about, Lord willing, at other parts of this study, what is it that the shepherd does? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He offers rest. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness or the right paths. He protects me. He corrects me. He keeps me safe. He prepares a table. He anoints my head. He fills my cup. Who is it that does all these things? The Lord. Now everybody is shepherded by somebody. But there is no shepherd like the Lord. As a father, it is my responsibility to shepherd my household. To provide for my household. To protect my household. And I hope I always do the very best that I can at that. But I am not perfect. I am not perfectly able to provide because I am also dependent. I am not perfectly able to protect because I am also weak. I am not fully able to satisfy because I am a mortal creature. We have two men that shepherd this flock and I believe do a very good job and I'm so thankful for them and we all should be. But as wonderful as they are, they are men. But the Lord can provide and He can provide fully because He is not dependent. The Lord He can protect and He can protect to the uttermost because He is not weak. The Lord, He can fill our cup till it is overflowing and never run out. The Lord can be a gracious host. We have some people here who are hospitable. We have some people that are good at hosting. Uh, Even, uh, I can't take any of the credit My wife is good at hosting. If she hosts a party, she will put a lot of work into it. She will make you feel comfortable. She will make sure that you have everything that you need. There are other sisters in this congregation that do the same thing. But you know, if you come over to my house, your cup might overflow for a while, but there will come a point where it cannot be filled anymore because we will run out. And as much as I love you all and enjoy having you in my home, You are not welcome there forever. But the Lord, the cup is overflowing always with never a chance of running dry. And we are welcome in the Lord's house, not for a while, not for an extended period of time, but forever. That's who our shepherd is. That's why it's so important that we stop and think about the awesome truth that we are shepherded by none other than the Lord. Even, or also I want to point out John 10 verse 11. Not only does the shepherd provide and protect, but the shepherd is even sacrificial. 
John 10 verse 11 says, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This makes me think of, of David. One of the reasons I've always thought I would never be a good shepherd in real life. If a lion or a bear came and stole one of the sheep, I'm okay with 99 sheep and my life intact. But the good shepherd, a good shepherd, goes after the lion, goes after the bear, risks his own life to save the life of the sheep. And you know, maybe now and then we have people in our lives that are like that, that are willing to sacrifice for us. But the fact that God, the great I Am, laid down His life for the sheep, that should bring you so much comfort. That should bring us so much hope, so much motivation to know not only do I maybe have friends, family, church family that love me, will help me, will sacrifice for me. There is a God, the God, who shepherds me and lays down his life for mine. The Lord is my shepherd. It's one thing to read this verse, this passage, and to think, oh, I might like this read at my funeral one day. It's one thing to read this passage and think that sounds very nice. It's another thing to read this passage and to realize how big that two-letter word is. The Lord, it's not that the Lord will be my shepherd. It certainly is not that the Lord has been my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd right now. We just read from John 10 earlier, or remember Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And that phrase applies just as much today as it did when he uttered it almost 2,000 years ago. He is actively shepherding his people. He is actively providing, actively protecting, actively working for the good and the benefit of his sheep. Yes, there is an eternal plan and eternal promises. That's hinted at and alluded to in Psalm 23 itself. But while there is something we are traveling to and while there is a destination we're working toward, He is leading us right now. And so while there may be eternal promises, there is also present peace and present power because the Lord is my shepherd. And lastly, the Lord is my Shepherd. One thing many commentators note that is very unique about this psalm is it's one of the few that is this personal. Now, we may be able to draw some of this out in later lessons, but Psalm 23, while it may not look like it at the surface, has Exodus themes flowing throughout. Many of the phrases that David uses are actually drawn out 
of the Exodus story from the books of Exodus and uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And David is able to consider God's shepherding role for his covenant people Israel and apply that to himself. I think we have to realize that while it's personal, it is also communal. You cannot be shepherded if you're not a part of the flock. People that say, I want Jesus but not the church. How can you ask for the shepherd if you're not a part of the flock? It's impossible. He doesn't just shepherd one sheep. He shepherds the whole flock. But based upon that covenant community, there is also an individual aspect. As I am a part of that covenant community that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. He shepherds my flock, and He shepherds me. He is my shepherd, and He knows me. Jesus says this about a good shepherd. He says, To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. A good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows their name. He knows their needs. He knows their weaknesses. He knows them because He is their shepherd. And what a blessing, what a privilege it is to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. Having this understanding, remembering who the Lord is and that He is a shepherd, should be one of the greatest sources of strength in all of life. We get to brag about our elders. We can brag about our fathers. We can brag about our bosses. We can brag about our influences and the people that mentor us and shepherd us. But nothing compares to the awesome truth for the child of God that the Lord is my shepherd. In that book that I mentioned, he referenced a story that is a, apparently an ancient story, at least it goes back for several centuries, to a well-known story over in Scotland apparently, about a young boy who lost his parents at a young age. They died prematurely from some accident or illness, and so this young boy was taken in by his grandfather. His grandfather lived in the Scottish Highlands, was just a simple shepherd. He wasn't able to send the boy to get an education. So the boy never learned to read, never learned to write. But he learned from his grandfather how to be a shepherd. He learned that lifestyle. Now his father or his grandfather was a Christian man who would often teach the scriptures to his uneducated grandson. He would especially tell him stories of shepherds. Shepherds like Moses. Shepherds like David. The good shepherd. Jesus. And one day he wanted to teach uh, the 23rd Psalm to his grandson. And since he couldn't read or write, he used a device that would help him. He, he used each of his hands and he had the boy give him his, his left hand and he pointed to each finger in turn to memorize these first five words. He said, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And it didn't take very long before this uneducated boy using that device had this first part of the psalm memorized. The Lord is my shepherd. 
Well, one day, this young boy, he was old enough now to go out from time to time on his own to oversee the flock. He was out on the hills. It was a wintry day, and suddenly a blizzard came upon the highlands. The grandfather got worried, and he tried to go out to help find his grandson and the sheep. But the snow was coming so fast, the wind was so boisterous, that, and his body was so aged that he realized he, he would not be able to go much further. If he went any further, stayed out any longer, he would lose all track of direction. And so, heartbroken and worried, he had to return to his cottage. Where he spent the night in his chair praying and worried for his grandson. The next day, as the storm abated, and it was finally clear enough for him to leave, he left and he went to an area that he had always told his grandson, if you're in a storm, try to go to this area. So he made his way there, but as he called out, he heard nothing. And then he saw a, a mound in the snow. He went and he began to brush the snow away and was heartbroken to find that the storm had claimed his precious grandson's life. He had frozen to death there in that storm. The man began to weep and to cry. But then he busied himself with the task of uncovering the boy. And he stooped down to pick him up. And when he did, he noticed something strange about the way the boy's hands were clasped. It wasn't quite natural. And as he took a closer look, he noticed his right hand was clasped around the fourth finger. The Lord is my shepherd. Facing the danger and the fear of death, that uneducated boy who could not read, he could not write, who had lost so much, found strength in knowing there was a shepherd like him, but so much greater. The Lord was his. That gave a new strength to the grandfather who was still heartbroken, but was now able to offer a prayer of thanks to the Lord, who is always watching, who is always caring, who even when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, is still our Lord. Mr. Gibson, in that book that I, that I was mentioning, he summed up his first chapter with this. My calling as a pastor is always to ask people where they are with this shepherd. The members of my congregation are asked all the time by others about their status in relation to something or someone their vaccine status, their relationship status, their employment status. But the pastor's job is to ask about flock status. Are you a sheep who knows the shepherd? This morning, can you say with confidence, with joy, the Lord is my shepherd? If you can, I don't need to know about any other aspect of your life, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're healthy or sick, whether you're living strong or maybe you're facing death in the face. If you can say today, the Lord is my shepherd, 
You are most blessed. And please don't ever forget that. If, however, this morning you realize that you cannot say the Lord is your shepherd, if your status is not part of his flock, I don't need to know your status either. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're healthy or sick, whether you're robust or facing death in the face, if the Lord is not your shepherd, you are most to be pitied. Because there is no other that will provide, there is no other that will protect, there is no other that will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, there is no other that will fill your cup, there is no other that will welcome you into life evermore than the Lord. So if He is not your Lord, why not make Him your shepherd today?